You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are at the Cabo de Gata. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am at Cabo de Gata, the westernmost point I learned today of the Mediterranean Sea, although I'm slightly dubious about that. I thought the westernmost um, point was somewhere around Gibraltar. But anyway, I'll go with it. And it's also the driest place in the Iberian Peninsula, but it didn't feel very dry today. We were all dripping with sweat and more of that later. I am joined tonight by a man whose humour may be dry, but his wine cellar is as well stocked and valuable as a wardrobe full of bike exchange skin suits, which as we heard yesterday are very expensive. He's coming to us almost live from Pietrasanta in Tuscany. He is the former CSC Team Sky and Green Edge Spin Doctor, much more than the humble press officer. He's an art dealer, a wine impresario, an author, a scholar, a lover of the fine things in life, and a reverse Nostradamus. Witness his prediction that Remco available would never win a Grand Tour the other day. He is Brian Nygaard. Brian, buenas tardes. How are you going, mate? Thank you. Buenas tardes. Yeah, it seems like my uh, my my uh, Wikipedia is getting like all kinds of editions. That was almost the whole podcast. It was almost last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, any more thoughts on Remco's, uh, the likelihood of Remco ever winning a Grand Tour over the last 48 hours? Well, I was trying to exercise my demons and I was writing a piece about trying to figure out what my issue is with him. And I was actually doing a little bit of a survey. Unfortunately, uh, for, for reasons of, of, of privacy, uh, for, for some pretty heavy people in cycling, I was asking around just to see if I was the only one, not so much in terms of him being able to win a Grand Tour or not, but whether he was a rider that they took pleasure in watching winning. And uh, yeah, he didn't get a lot of votes, to be honest. One I can mention, and that's just to like some, how reclaim some authority on the subject, was Jorgen Lett. Wow. Danish filmmaker, famous for, uh, you know, a, a spring day in hell, stars and water carriers, and then you have some 25 years of commentating the Tour de France. He is not a Remco Evenepoel fan either, but he also mentioned to me that he couldn't he couldn't either put his finger on what it was, uh, and and uh, even if I wrote a, a rather long article today about it, neither could I. Well, Lionel Lionel Lionel, um, Lionel is not joining us tonight, although he's um, he sends everyone his warmest regards. Um, Brian, I'm gazing out towards the well, the end of the the bookend of the Mediterranean Sea and I, I think I can see you in the distance standing on an increasingly lonely island with Jürgen Lett. <laughs> um, yes. Well, you know, it wouldn't be the worst person to be stuck on an no, island with. You know, he's, he's brilliant company. Another bon vivant, uh, another bon vivant. Um, I, am, I should actually say that I'm surrounded by, well, enormous piles, conical piles of salt. We're on the Salinas. Um, in Cabo de Gata, the salt mines. Actually, we saw a number of signs at the finish today. Save the salt, salt mines, SOS. Um, kind of ironic, I suppose, or unfortunate from the point of view of the Vuelta organisers um, that, well, today we ended in a place which is suffering more of these, well, environmental and climatic um, consequences 
we've been talking about this in the last few days. In fact, Brian and I discussed this um, when we last convened after Sunday's stage. And the, the suspecter of, of climate change. And yes, this is a part of the world that's being affected as well. The salt mines themselves, they're, they're being starved of water at the moment. And the situation is quite dramatic. And we started in a place, as mentioned yesterday, the El Pozo factory. An enormous empire, a huge sprawling factory um, the size of a small town. And... Um, we were very much, well, within the confines, within the sanctum of the, the, the factory and the company. El Pozo are a huge sponsor of uh, La Vuelta a España. And I mentioned yesterday there have been Greenpeace protests about well, their environmental record and the dumping of pig slurry. And well, there were a few protesters there this morning, chained to a tree. I met up with Stacey Snyder, um, provider of our wonderful mugs this morning. And she said that she saw some protesters, I think she said chained um, to a tree but um, that sounds quite dramatic doesn't it but um, good on them for standing up for, for what they believe in um, and I certainly won't be eating any El Pozo meat anytime soon Brian it's about time we got to the, the, the first traditional fixed point of our Vuelta a España the, the first waypoint of our Vuelta a España podcast it is El resumen de la etapa a contra a reloj. Take it away, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contra reloj. The stage summary time trial. Brian, are you ready? Are you feeling up for it? Are you feeling psyched, pumped, ready to go? Well, I've been, you know, caffeinating and been sitting on my turbo train that's just potentially set a new record. And today's stage came in handy because, yeah, nothing at all happened. Almost. Well, I am poised with my stopwatch. Brian Nygaard, I'm going to invite you to roll down the ramp and tell us what happened on today's stage. Off you go. So, stage 11 from the El Pozo factory to Cabo de Gata, 191 kilometers. Five riders didn't start. They were all tested positive for COVID-19. Most importantly, Simon Yates and Pavel Sivakov. Three riders went early to form the breakaway for today. There was a lot of uh, headwind, uh, so it wasn't a fast stage at all. Uh, with um, the three riders were Wojciech Grepa, Juan Bu, and Yetzebol. Yetzebol was the last to be left out there in front of the peloton, but he was caught with 26 to go. However, with 60 kilometers to go, Ale Philippe crashed out of the welter. Looks like a collarbone or shoulder fracture, not good news for him with the walls coming up so close. There was a 10k to go, an intermediate sprint won by Mats Peterson, so he gained 20 seconds. Uh, 20 points in three seconds, excuse me, and it didn't bode well for him, however, for the, at the finish line where his lead out didn't really work out for him and the stage instead was won by Caden Groves of Team Bike Exchange Jaco in front of Danny Van Poppel and Tim Millier. No other changes in the GC apart from the fact that now uh, Simon Yates and Sivakov are out. A couple of guys are obviously moving up in the uh, general classification. Um, uh, I also Almeida Lopez uh, and Gegenhardt, Ben O'Connor Ansman and Jai Hindley all take a step up in the GC. That's still led by Remco Evenepoel in front of Primoz Roglic with 2.41s behind. Well, just snuck in there, Brian. I thought at one stage you were going to come in early there and I was going to have to tell you to talk about, ruminate on, I don't know, cold meat for a few minutes. But... Um, cold meat I would suggest packaged meat processed meat is probably a, a subject one of the few subjects that you um, are not not inclined 
too too wax romantic or wax lyrical about um, probably not your area of expertise, Brian. Um, but you mentioned you did mention all of the main happenings today. COVID nineteen that was a big topic of conversation today, not least in the media. We've now been barred from the team buses. Um, a lot of consternation, hand wringing in the press room about that. And um, more impo- importantly, much more importantly for the race, you mentioned the five absentees at the start line this morning through COVID nineteen and. Julien Alaphilippe crashing out. Well, it was a, it was a day of contrasting fortunes, and obviously, uh, well, Bike Exchange themselves suffered contra- contrasting fortunes with Simon Yates having to leave the race and Caden Groves winning. We're going to hear from a Bike Exchange rider now. Um, we're going to hear from Lawson Craddock, who was pretty instrumental in that lead-out train for Caden Groves. And before that, we're going to hear also from Luke Platt, the Australian rider, who's having a bit of a torrid first Vuelta España, but he's still got a smile on his face. Cra- great character, Luke Platt. He's going he's gonna to entertain us and, and I'm sure enlighten us for many years to come. He had a little crash today. We're going to hear from him first, and then we will hear from one of the, the defeated sprinters today, uh, your countryman, Mads Pedersen, about whom we're also going to talk a bit more later, Brian. So here they are, Plap, Pedersen, and finally, Lawson Craddock. Uh, just a bit unlucky day, mate. Uh, I was bound to happen at once. So. Look, I've come off a ride, and I'm lucky it's not too bad, and that was all it was. Um, yeah, look, it was, a, it was an all right day to have it, mate. I'm fine. Uh, just my pride's a bit hurt, mate. But yeah, the roads were slippery. They were, they were almost too good of roads that they were that slippery. Um, but now everything's good. Unfortunately, I saw Alaphilippe down and it doesn't look too good, but look, we're, we're still here to fight and I reckon we're well in it. Yeah, pretty hectic always when, when you have a long straight like this, the last three Ks. And yeah, the only part of, of the race today with Tailwind was the last three Ks also. So pretty fast, a lot of guys everywhere. And uh, yeah, then uh, Alex did a really good job and put me in a good position, 300 meters to go. but. Yeah, I didn't trust my, uh, my my long sprint today, so I misjudged a little bit and, and yeah, I didn't really open a good sprint and I was caught a bit bit behind the other guys, so yeah, never, never, never trust yourself again, that's uh, what I'm getting out of today. Oh, it's a special win, uh, especially how we started the day, uh, you know, I think it's a huge testament to the, the culture of this team. Uh, we lost one leader, but the, uh, our other leader really stepped up today. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we showed there's, there's still a lot of fight left in us. Uh, it's, it's a huge honor whenever, you know, as a team, you can win a stage of Grand Tour. These are the biggest races in the world against the best competition. And, and uh, uh, finish like this, races like this, it, uh, it's definitely a lot of teamwork that goes into it. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's really special. You know, we had a lot of faith in, in Caden, and uh, he definitely showed he had the legs to, to finish it off. Lawson, that's an unusual finish. It's arrow straight and it's very exposed. It looked like you were the man that was chosen to do the first part of that last three kilometers. Just talk about your role today. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, we, we, we're a man down with, with Simon and, uh, you know, we, uh, we were kind of running out of guys and, and, and to, to do exact roles. But I think everyone really stepped up and uh, picked up the slack today. Durbo, uh, I mean, he, he rode all day to control the breakaway and then, uh, and then really... Oh, held the front kept us out of the wind for the last 20 30k when all the teams were pushing and and shoving towards the front uh that was that was huge lucas hamilton uh same thing he he led us into that final 4k and then from there my job was just to keep the guys out of the wind we honestly expected a little bit more wind in the, in the final 4k coming from the from the sea but uh the goal was just to keep caden out of the wind safe uh and, and in a good position for him to sprint 
Lawson, you told us yesterday with a straight face that it wasn't humid. And this is this is the driest place in Spain today, and but you've got sweat dripping off you. Come on, you can't tell us the same thing today. Oh, these are just tears of joy just running down my face. Yeah. <laughs> the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Teams and riders in both the men's and women's world tour use the Super Sapiens continuous glucose monitoring system in training, but they're not permitted to use it in racing. Sam Brand of Team Novo Nordisk is, for health reasons, as a type 1 diabetic, it's absolutely critical that he knows what his blood glucose levels are doing at all times, and without this technology, he wouldn't be able to race safely. Now, when he was in the break at the Tour of Poland on day one, One of the things was that he was able to monitor his blood glucose levels to an even greater degree because it was easier to look down and see what his level was doing and to use that information to inform his fueling choices because of course being in the break he was burning more energy than he would have been back in the peloton. So that's where the sensor comes on board you know uh, into its own really more than anything because I've got the ability to see obviously in the peloton and in the breakaway the the live data but um, at that point, I can see more. I guess I have more sort of freedom to check, uh, especially when I'm in a group of five as opposed to a group of 150. You know, it's obviously a bit that bit easier, but it's something more and more important to stay on top of. It's always important to stay on top of it, but monitoring that um, blood glucose level, especially in the break where you're burning more calories, you're burning more energy, you need to make sure that you're on top of that. But also, uh, I was using it to focus on continually eating you know making sure that i'm replenishing that energy level and keeping up with that and in the breakaway uh, again it's important uh, but i'm able to monitor it a little bit more closely than i would if i was having to do everything else in the group so um not that i don't anyway but i was being able to check it more and it, it came into its own and it was absolutely phenomenal to be able to to use the, the this technology and to be able to sort of stay on top of it all El Diario Remco, the Daily Remco. I have to say, yesterday after the finish, there were so many people. It was actually quite dangerous. So uh, I hope that the organization can uh, can bring a bit more safety uh, into the finish areas because yesterday was quite like a nightmare. Is there another option than testing? Because some of the guys are not sick. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, that's a good question. I think they already said that if you don't have the symptoms, you can keep racing. But I mean, even without having the symptoms being ill, it's dangerous for the body. For example, our teammate Tim de Klerk got, uh, got problems with his heart. So, uh, yeah, it's always dangerous. You or the team, do you or the team talk to the organization about the crowds at the finish and try to make a change? I think we might do it from today on. I mean, we'll have to see uh, what, what it brings in the finish line today. But... Uh, also, like the Sierra Nevada stage, I already can imagine all the people next to the road. So uh, I think we might make a statement and try to uh, keep this race as safe as possible. It's not a good thing. Let's just hope that uh, it, it 
days a bit controlled and then everybody, yeah, the, the last cases are gone. I mean, it's super unfortunate for Simon and for Pavel because they've been really working really hard as well to get into this Vuelta. Uh, they both did a really good performance yesterday, so uh, yeah, I hope uh, those cases will be the last cases, but I'm afraid they will not be. Well, that was the Diario Remco, the daily Remco, talking today, our race leader, about COVID-19 and about his concerns, the fact that, well, certainly yesterday at the finish in Alicante, he was pretty much mobbed um, after the finish. And there's a, well, there's a lot of anxiety, as you can imagine, in the peloton about precisely that issue for reasons we have discussed and we'll, we'll go on to discuss um, in a minute. Um, Brian, we should just talk a little bit more about the sprint and Caden Grove's first World Tour stage win. Now, this has been coming. There's a, I think there's a prevailing sort of feeling, uh, consensus, that Caden Groves is very fast and he's one of the fastest guys around, but he, he gets lost in the last few kilometres, um, has tended to get, get a bit lost, um, go astray. And today, Bike Exchange did a fantastic job. They really uh, took control, um, as we heard um, Lawson Craddock d- described then, particularly in the last four kilometres, you know, it's it's not a peninsula as such, um, Cabo de Gata, but it's a, it's a straight shot, uh, a straight road out and very exposed. We thought there might be some crosswinds today, but they really took it on there and they made things clean and easy, as easy as a Grand Tour sprint can possibly be for Caden Groves. And there was really no way that he was going to get lost today. No, uh, interestingly, uh, t- th- however, others got lost. Riders, I, I wasn't expecting to see get lost, but it, uh, you saw the relief uh, of Caden Groves, and I think that was that was my high point of, of the stage because I mean, he's, he's, like you said, he's had it he's had it coming for a while, and it's been probably also a little bit frustrating that he's been missing that that one big win, especially now, maybe especially now that he's changing teams. It's definitely extremely important for uh, Team Bike Exchange Jaco that they get these points now that. Uh, Samoyes is out of the race and they are in dire uh, uh, conditions regarding the relegation from the World Tour. Yeah, on that, Caden Groves changing teams at the end of the season. I know that there are people at Bike Exchange that are quite perplexed that he's taken this decision because he's going to a team, the Koenig Alpersin, where, well, he's certainly not going to be the only sprinter. Okay, Tim Merlier will be leaving that team and going to Quick Step Alpha Vinyl, but Jasper Philipson is still there. They have other fast riders as well. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of opportunities he gets. I mean, Philipson is someone who has demonstrated on more than one occasion that he knows his way around a World Tour, uh, sort of Grand Tour sprints. So um, Caden Groves will have to fight for elbow room with Jasper Philipson, certainly. But just remaining with Bike Exchange for the moment, Brian, we mentioned the fact that the day started terribly for them with the news that Simon Yates was out of the Vuelta a España. Of course, he, in 2020, wasn't it? Um, he had to leave the Giro d'Italia early because of a positive test for COVID. And, well, the same thing has happened at this Vuelta when he was going pretty well. Well, very well, in fact. He was fifth on general classification. Um, this morning, as you can imagine, his teammates were pretty crestfallen. Let's hear from one of them now, a guy who, well, he played a, a big role in Caden Groves winning the stage today. He did a lot of work on the front all day. In fact, Luke Durbridge is here from him. And he was going really well. You know, had a really good time trial yesterday, and uh, I felt like he was on his way up uh, to chase for that podium uh, in the Walter. So, yeah, huge loss for us. Um, 
so yeah, we had to refocus and uh, Caden's Grove was uh, a big focus for us coming in for sprints, so we'll have to shift that to Caden and um, yeah, hopefully we can uh, come out with a stage win. I know from the Tour de France when I tested positive after stage 10, it's a lot of work goes into being in the right condition for the big, big golf. Um, feels like the end of the world today. Um, and a week's time, we'll be okay and uh, got to refocus for the next part of the season. He's sick, of course, he's not racing, but a lot of the guys that test positive are not really sick. Uh, yeah. you, th you think there should be something to, to change the, the situation? For sure. Yeah, 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 I think so. You know, uh, I think it's just we don't know yet what happens if you race with COVID. It's uh, still so new, so I think everyone's just unsure about that, and no one really wants to make the call on. You know that this is going to be okay if you race with COVID. So I think until we know, until the experts give us some more information that it's fine for our bodies to race in 40 degrees and go as hard as we possibly can with the uh, COVID-19, then I don't think we're going to do it. So uh, yeah, it's, it is annoying that we keep testing for it and we keep finding people that you feel fine, you have COVID, and you have to go home. But I guess until we have more information, we just don't know. So. Uh, We're just trusting our doctors and uh, our health is at the priority. Um, it's just difficult for for everything going on with uh, all the riders pulling out. Yeah. So right now it's actually the teams pulling out riders because from what I hear, the organization would be willing to let somebody race without symptoms. And that's the thing. Uh, the organization lets someone race with symptoms, may give it to someone else that gets symptoms. So it's a hard one. And, uh, and the organisers, it's a difficult spot. It's a hard spot for the teams. I don't know what's right. Uh, I think everyone's trying to do the best they can. Uh, it's definitely not teams versus uh, organisation or anything like that. It's just no one really knows what the right answer is. So uh, at this moment, it's just frustrating, especially when guys are pulling out that are healthy. Uh, but for Simon, I think he was, he was crook, so uh, it was unfortunate for him. Well, Brian, I thought that was very fair and very realistic from Luke Durbridge. Um, the tendency in these situations is to throw your arms up and criticise someone, anyone, whether it was the organisation. What we didn't hear there on mic, I also asked Luke Durbridge about the conditions of the transfer a few days ago, whereby some of the riders were taken in their team buses from the finish at Les Praeres or down the bottom of the mountain to the airport where they then got on a flight. Other teams were sort of loaded into these well, collective buses where there were all, where there multiple teams together. And, um, yeah, they, that didn't seem ideal. And then on the plane itself, of course, you, you're always going to be at risk. But even that, he said, you know, it, it's... It's part and parcel of doing these grand tours and of everyday life and, and just moving around in society. And he didn't really point the finger at the organisation, which I thought was quite noble of him um, in these circumstances when he's obviously very disappointed. Yeah, I also thought it was uh, interesting and, and very relevant what he said about what they don't know. You know none of us uh, should be considered uh, experts on epidemiology, but the fact that he says we don't know the potential damage you can do if you do race with COVID. Uh, even if, if, you know, the riders who leave the race were, you know, going extremely well yesterday and up, uh, high up in GC, so they're obviously fit and well to ride. But is it healthy to ride if you have the virus in your body? And if you pass it on to someone, and I think that's the biggest issue and the reason why they're going home, is that other people might not react as mildly to being infected as, as others. So... Yeah, you can only really rely on science. What else do we have? You know, opinion is, is absolutely 
contingent, I think, in this in this matter. So as long as 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 we rely on on what we know and and not so much what we don't know, I think we're, we're better off, regardless of how yeah tedious it is to see riders lead that way. And the fact that someone who's lost their captain says it that way, I think that's I think that's also very balanced and fair. Yes, bro. I suppose we should remind the listeners of what the prevailing rules are, what the what the current protocol is. It's the same one that was used at the Tour de France. It's different from the one we saw last year and the year before. So the UCI is now making a distinction between mandatory measures and strongly recommended measures. The mandatory measures are as follows. Two days before the start of the race, uh, they demand the presentation of at least one negative antigen test for all members of the team, riders and staff. Um, on the rest days of the event, so that's the 29th of August and the 5th of September in the case of the Vuelta, a COVID-19 antigen test for all team members as well as for commissaires, uh, UCR technical delegates and anti-doping personnel. So they're, they're mandatory. Strongly recommended are as follows. During the five days preceding the race, daily antigen tests for all team members in order to verify no one is carrying the virus, which is essential for the constitution of the team bubbles and the peloton bubble. And then during the race, if possible, daily but at least every two to three days antigen tests for team members except riders. The same principle of monitoring is recommended for the commissaires, UCI technical delegates and anti-doping control personnel based on antigen self-testing. You mentioned, Brian, well, the, the health implications. I mean, there are two for, for the riders themselves. We heard Chris Froome the other day talk about how he's had some very strange heart rate readings since having COVID um, at the Tour de France. Um, that's one issue, isn't it? And then the other issue, of course, is contagion and, and the possibility of spreading the virus around the peloton and further afield and, and not knowing how those infected people are going to react. Yeah, unfortunately, we're still, you know, we're not at the end of the tunnel yet with with this, and hopefully, going into this winter, which potentially means for the for the next season, uh, we'll probably get another vaccine, most of us at least, and, and hopefully that will be a, a a big step further in in not having this have a, a huge impact on the outcome of some of the biggest races in the world. Yes, yeah, it's, it's starting to look pretty threadbare, this peloton. I mentioned the, the hand-wringing among journalists about not being able to go into the team paddock. I mean, uh, on the one hand, I can un- understand it. On the other hand, uh, I do think it's, it's a sort of facile, easy way for the organisation to make it look as though they're taking action because, because the journalists are going to moan and they're going to talk about it and they're going to write about it predominantly on Twitter, um, as usually happens in professional cycling. So, And there's a lot of bang for the organisers' buck um, by introducing this measure. However, with these new measures in place, so a, a mixed zone of the old style, the style that we had in COVID 2020 in place at the finish today, so we're all in fact effectively caged, which some would say is where we should be in cages. Um <laughs> There were there were public. I mean, it was on the beach. The, the cages were on the beach, which was quite nice. But we were infiltrated by all sorts of people in Bermuda shorts and bikinis, and and um, yeah, there was no there was no distancing, or they weren't respecting any kind of distancing whatsoever. So you know, it's it's a bit of a token gesture um, on the part of the organisers. But as Luke Durbridge said, there are no easy answers here. Um, we just hope that that the, the stream of COVID positives doesn't become a flood in the next few days. Um, Brian, a uh, bad day for Simon Yates, uh, Pavel Sivakov uh, and others today who left the race. A terrible day in an anus horribilis for Julien Alaphilippe. 
Yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, I mean, we don't even have to talk about the curse of the rainbow jersey because that's, that's just an old wives tale. But I think for him, he was coming very strongly, I think, in this World Cup, other than being very essential help for Evenepoel, I think his trajectory, even if the Worlds are very, very close and, and there's a lot of traveling involved getting to Australia, I think he, he looked as if he would have a pretty good chance of, of being up there at the Worlds in Australia. And I think that's the big disappointment. You know, it's obviously better to have a, an injury at the end of the season than, than mid-season, but that was his big goal and his season, you know, after the big crash he had in Liège hasn't really been anything that he had hoped for. No, I mean, it has been an absolutely rotten year. He had that terrible crash in Liège after which, well, he, he it was a while before he spoke about it. He finally did an interview in, with L'Equipe in the summer, having not been selected for the Tour de France, and he said he deliberately not revisited this crash because he was... He was suffering from a kind of trauma and he already said in that interview, I, I'm not the same rider, I won't be the same person after this crash. It was so traumatic. Um, he really sort of stared disaster in the face. Um, you'll remember that he was sort of saved, he was kind of hauled out of a ditch by Roman Bardet. And I think he was very, very frightened yeah. that day after that crash. And then when he, having gone to Sierra Nevada and trained to come back, he then fell ill again in June and, and that was one of the reasons why he wasn't picked for the Tour de France. Then he started up again, uh, won a stage of the Tour de Wallonie and then got COVID during that race um, at the end of July. So it's, it has been a bit of a wipeout for him, this, this Vuelta a España. And well, we can only hope that he does bounce back. But I was slightly concerned reading that interview in July when he, he he was talking about the possibility that it will be permanent changes. I mean, certainly in the way he's handled the bike and the way he's approached this Vuelta a España, there's been no trace of that. I mean, we saw that. If ever you needed evidence of that, you only had to watch those few kilometres, um, which we talked about, you and I, Brian, on Sunday, going into the bottom of the Les Praeres exactly. climb where he was slaloming around the bends and looking fantastic. But where they, sh- they will surely miss him although Patrick Lefebvre poo-pooed this suggestion when I kind of <laughs> talked about talked about experience and heritage um, yesterday in our interview they will miss his experience won't they they oh. will surely in a team with riders like Van Wilder who's you know is a young rider a team that's not ever won a Grand Tour together or even contended for it they will surely miss him yeah, for sure, for sure. There's not, there's no way around it. It just depends on what kind of trouble he's going to see for the for the remainder of the race. I think my malediction is not going to be his biggest uh, rival trying to win his first uh, ever Grand Tour. But if if he is in in in, I think he can only lose this race. Put it that way, he can only lose this race if he really has a horrible day. He has a significant buffer, but if they all... Hang know, on, hang on. The, oh, is no. this the reverse Nostradamus? I'm changing gears. No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying it like it is for once. So, and, you know, that kind of experience of, of not... I've, I've seen him panic before, for instance, at the Giro, uh, the one, Banal one. He was pretty easy to, to... He faced a little bit too easily, I think, and... Having someone as experienced as Stella Philippe in his ear and especially, you know, next to him or in front of him in those situations, I think would, make, would have made a huge difference. However, though, it also goes to, the, I think it needs to be said that the, the, the riders who exited today, you know, Sivakov and, and, and Simon Yates were also riders who would be potential troublemakers for him. So I think that, you know, it, it, might, it might balance itself out now that, you know, that the potential outsiders have been diminished somewhat. 
Talking of experience, I should mention I had a nice chat with Robert Haysink this morning. He's been riding actually very well. He's one of the few Jumbo Visma riders who hasn't had any kind of health issues and um, he's sort of sailed through the first 10 days or so of the World Tour. And, you know, just on the prospect of, of Primoz Roglic turning this around, he sounded pretty upbeat. He said that Primoz was in very good spirits. And, um, well, they still believe, Brian, so maybe you're prediction your initial prognostication wasn't as ridiculous <laughs> as we're making as we're making out yeah well i mean even still even still if you look at the, the standings as they are he's leading almost with three minutes you know how if he's at the same strength as he's been you know coming in to this the harder part of, of the world so like how are they going to find three minutes unless he has a, a devastating crisis I'm, I'm finding that hard to believe but we we are yet to see that you know it's never raced at this at you know, at this level with the leaders jersey on, you know, we're going into a very high altitude in Sierra Nevada. You know, how does he recuperate? So he's he's going into unknown terrain. So you know, it it, it might be completely flawed my crystal ball, but it's 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 undecided. Obviously, we're still at stage eleven just. Shoot, shoot at du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That said, PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of our Vuelta coverage is sponsored by NordVPN. All our listeners can get an exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com TCP and you'll get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months free. It's completely risk-free too with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Now, what is a VPN, I hear you ask? Well, if you've heard NordVPN slots in our previous episodes, you'll know that it's primarily a security device, a virtual private network to keep your data safe and secure when you're online, either at home or on the move. But one other benefit to having NordVPN is if you're away on holiday or traveling out of the country for work and you want to watch your favorite box set on a streaming service and find that it's been geo-blocked, you can simply log in as if you're in your home country because VPN gives you a virtual location in your home country so you don't need to miss your favorite shows when you are traveling abroad. Go to NordVPN slash TCP to sign up today and we'll put those details in the show notes. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily dose of musical masochism as we revisit the official Vuelta España songs that provide the acoustic backdrop to this race down the years while also discussing what occurred on the road. Today, Brian, we're going back to 2015 and a year when Spain was represented by the same song and the same artist in both the Vuelta España and the Eurovision Song Contest. That song was Amanecer o Dawn and was performed by Edurne. A very famous singer in Spain, possibly known to some in the UK, is the wife of Manchester United goalie David De Gea. Unfortunately, in Eurovision, the song proved not to be a keeper and finished 21st out of 27 entries. 
The current 2022 world has so far been dominated by a time trial ace from the Low Countries blossoming into an all-round GC virtuoso, and the 2015 edition was in some ways similar. The dawn in Edurne's official anthem could indeed just as well have referred to Tom Dumoulin's definitive arrival in the Grand Tour jet set, or in fact, to the man who finally ripped the red jersey from Dumoulin's back two days from the end. Peter Velitz, Esteban Chavez, Purito Rodriguez and Fabio Aru all had the lead before that point with Aru taking the jersey on the monstrous, monstrous 11th state of Andorra, which the Vuelta organisers had built as the hardest in the race's history with 5,300 metres of climbing. For anyone wondering, only two Grand Tour stages will break the 5,000 metre barrier in 2022, both of them at the Giro, yeah, but they came well in, oh, they came in well under... 5,300 metres. Uh, Dumoulin took the jersey back off Aru uh, on stage 17 TT, but three days later, 24-year-old Sardinian and his Astana team definitively cracked Dumoulin with a coordinated long-range attack in the Sierra de Guadarrama, north of Madrid. So often the scene of the Vuelta's decisive battles and where this year's race may ultimately be decided. Aru would finish the Vuelta with a 57-second advantage over Purito Rodriguez in Madrid, while Dumoulin, who it turned out had been ill the previous day, sunk to sixth place. That year's jersey was also that year's jersey. That year's race was also peppered with controversy. The organisers neutralising the opening team time trial following complaints about a course that some, i.e. me, likened to a crazy golf course. Vincenzo Nibali was also kicked out for frankly taking, well, for taking a frankly outrageous toe from his team car on the second day. And Peter Sagan and Sergio Paulinho suffered injuries in collisions with official race vehicles. Paulinho and Sagan's team owner, Oleg Tinkoff, threatened to withdraw his team for what he called a badly organised and superficial race. He suggested the incidents involving his riders may have been orchestrated by ASO as part of a, a campaign against him. How we miss Oleg Tinkoff, Brian, or do we? Or do we? Have you got any good Tinkoff stories? Yeah, I have plenty. I have plenty. I, um, Go on, indulge us. I haven't seen him for. I haven't seen him for a while. Well, mine goes back to. I think it was maybe it was six, 15, actually fifteen or sixteen. No, what it was. It was twenty fifteen because I remember I was also um, there was a, an outcome at the, at the Giro which could have uh, caused some trouble for for both both definitely mostly for me and not so much for him. But he was trying to hire me in twenty fifteen and. Uh, Something that I wasn't particularly interested in, but I, I did uh, have dinner with him and Bjarne Reese. Actually, very close to where I'm sitting right now, in Forte de Marmi, where uh, Tinkov, uh, I believe, still owns a, a big luxury villa. And uh, I, I, you know, just for the, you know, Bjarne and I are good friends, and I, I said yes, and we went for dinner. And something must have happened in the aftermath because Bjarne had told Tinkov that I was totally ready and would uh, join the team. Uh, <laughs> Something that I wasn't either aware of nor at all interested in. And then um, I remember being at Paris. This, I think, happened around Tirreno. And then I, um, I met uh, Tinkoff, uh, I think it was in Paris-Roubaix. And he sort of winked his eye at me. I said, like, yeah, done deal. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And I, I called Bjarne on the Monday and asked, what's going on? Ah, you should still give it a think. You know, maybe this is something for you. I said, no, it's, it's, it's not, mate. And uh, it was, I think it was just... It didn't seem like uh, Bjarne had actually ultimately communicated this because at the Giro that year on the time trial to Barolo, 
Think of, as you probably remember, had this uh, all your story, all, all of your young. stories involve Barolo somewhat in in some sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for better or for worse. So he was arriving at the finish line because he was out riding the time trial, and he drove straight into me almost and started yelling at me and saying that I wasted his time and how how come I had let him on to think that I would uh, join his team when I when I actually wouldn't, and I just went for dinner with him to drink uh, his wine and. And I said, well, listen, mate, first of all, it wasn't great wine. And second of all, it wouldn't like for the life of <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Second of all, it wouldn't for the life of me join your team. And I was standing next to my colleagues at, at, uh, at Oric at the time. and thought it was a little bit embarrassing, you know, even that I would, that was, I was very happy where I was. And, um, and then uh, that, that was the end of it. it. It just seemed a little bit uh, odd, uh, you know, from going from ha- you know, having, you know, a friendly dinner or as friendly as they could be with, with Tinkov and, and Bjarne, who, who I, who I consider a friend and then getting thrown into this mess. But yeah, I ha- haven't seen him and the, there's a bit of a Russian enclave uh, in the town next to where I am, but it's been, we've been uh, lucky this year to not you, have been, um, the, the beaches haven't been, haven't been busy with the uh, Russian oligarchs. You, you criti- and I, doubt, I doubt there'll be any time You criticise his taste in wine, I bet you took pot shots at his stemware as well, and even more, an even graver insult. <laughs> I am. I, yeah, I, you and yeah, I are both, are both very particular, particular about that, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We are definitely. Yeah, that's, that is one thing we agree on, you and I. Uh, what I don't miss about Tinkov, and these memories are mainly associated with the Vuelta a España, are his budgie smugglers. Um, in 2016, he was riding most of the stages well ahead of the race in only speedos. Um, I think they were turquoise. <laughs> and he would then proceed to conduct interviews with me and other journalists outside the team bus, still wearing the same speedos that he'd finished his ride in half an hour earlier. Um, Brian, let's talk, let's talk about something serious, a little bit more serious anyway. Um, Mads Pedersen didn't get the result he wanted to today. And there are a few people at this Vuelta España who are slightly perplexed that Mads is not going to the... World Championships in Australia. It's a race, of course, that he has won before. He was the world champion in Yorkshire a couple of, well, three or four years ago now, four years ago. Um, why is he not going? Well, his own explanation is that he's had a, a very long season. He's not keen on traveling that far straight after the welter. He, he feels like he's, he, he needs to go home and spend time with his, his wife. Um, and he, I, think, I don't know how early he told uh, Anders Lund, who's the, who's the coach of the Danish national team, but he, he selected other riders, obviously, now that, that Peterson isn't available. Um, I, I think he would have, a, he would have had a, a good chance, depending on how the race. Sometimes, you know, you see a hard parkour or hard-ish parkour, as we have in Australia, and then eventually it ends up in, in a relatively big group at the end anyways. And if he were to be in that group after a long race, he would always be a, a contender um, if he was if he was up for it. But I was I also found that, you know, looking back on all the other years, I've, I've seen riders trying to plan at the later part of the season. If they're not if they're not up for it, there's no reason to go really. And uh, and he he's probably the better judge of that than at least that I am. I suppose uh, a critic might ask why then. Did he decide to do the Vuelta España with no apparent intention to leave the race? And, and this is a trend. This is a uh, sort of custom that's disappeared. Really, we used to get a lot of the Vuelta field would come here with the firm intention of leaving after ten or twelve days, nominally only to to prepare for the World Championships. We don't really get that anymore. But why didn't Mads Pedersen choose that path, for example? Yeah, he could have done that for sure. Uh, that that would actually be the the best way to 
put it into perspective because that would have left him with less travel and he could have prepared just as well at home for the for the Worlds. I just, maybe he's not keen on, on doing all that, that travel. There could also be other reasons that, that he's not you know, telling us, but I think he's pretty straightforward usually. He's not someone who's cagey about whatever he, he wants to do or doesn't want to do. But as often uh, you see with classics riders, which I still consider him, and he's definitely had, he still has unfinished business with both Flanders and Roubaix, that often they will finish the world to actually shoehorn themselves into to the next season and, and coming out of, of a, a later part of the year with with a big uh, Grand Tour in the legs. So I think that's probably more than anything more his um, his motivation for finishing the world. Well, Brian, he has been the focus for Trek Segafredo certainly so far in this Vuelta a España. His teammate Juan P. Lopez was was here to aim for the general classification, but he bumped his knee early on in the race and has been quite anonymous. Um, until now but they have worked tirelessly for Mads Pedersen one of the riders we have seen on the front not on a day like today on flat stages but on the hillier days has been Kenny Ellison King Kenny Ellison um, he of course took the red jersey in Albacete last year he only held it for a day um, he also won on the Angliru in 2013 he's a friend of the podcast and he's also the subject of today's Encuentro del Día take it away Rob Hatch and then Kenny Ellison talking to me outside the El Pozo uh, mega factory um, of, of, of nightmares this morning. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. We have a bit of a general chat with you. First of all, how's your world going? Uh, yeah, not so bad. I mean, uh... A bit under the weather at the moment, uh, a bit of a cold, no, no COVID, we do everything, but uh, yeah, uh, weekend, weekend was pretty hard, after we we walked that day for mats, uh, we, all, all the team needed a little bit of rest during the weekend, but it was a really hard weekend, so we we tried to take it easy and conservative to, to recover, to to walk again uh, for us for that pin jersey and to to be able to to do something in the mountain or so because uh, we use it all the team for the for trying to bring back the breakaway that day and uh, then we miss it the energy for the weekend in the mountain am i right in thinking you started this welter in really great form you looked as though you were on those first two or three days yeah, yeah i was i was in a good good form then uh yeah, we took uh, that day with uh, with the rain. The day after, we I I woke up from Mads. Uh, had a cold in the between, and then uh, cycling is going so fast. Suddenly, you you have the impression uh, you're really good, and then uh, two days after, you it's almost more surviving. So, but it can also go the other way quick. So, I hope uh, I'm gonna recover a little bit this day and uh, be on the attack maybe already tomorrow. And Kenny, it's, it's nine years since you went on the Angliru. Um, do you ever think about how much this race has changed and, well, how much cycling's changed in those nine years? Yeah, I mean, it did change a lot. I mean, uh, you can see also, like, uh, the young guy, you know, it's a cliche to say that, but they are stronger and stronger. There is no question about it. And uh, what, what do you think the biggest, what's the biggest reason for that, do you personally think? I think more professional, more early. You know, when I got professional, I had to steal a little bit, you know, the job, the, the, the knowledge, you know, like the, 
the old guy will, will not spread around too much their thing and you have to look and the first two years were basically you were asking nothing but just going around and learn and trying to see as now in uh, under 23 it's almost professional team and so they come already and Every information is also available on training, uh, good articles, travel. That's, that's the big thing that everyone mentions. Uh, it's difficult to quantify how much of a difference that makes, even something like Strava. Yeah, maybe, you know, no, you can avoid mistake then. You know, maybe 10 years ago there were one, one Remco already, but it, it burned himself doing bad thing or bad diet, you know, trying to be, I don't know, too skinny or whatever. So, no, it's more, it's, 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 they have better guidance to, to, to reach their potential really early and uh, also the team take them really early. I remember Mark Maggio was one of the first one to, to turn the, the guy pretty early, like when I was 19, 20, you know. No, no it's just normal and uh, so they can, uh, so they can uh, earn like the knowledge uh, pretty early and uh, yeah. Is it as much fun? I remember Thibaut said last year that his early years, that was sort of a golden age in his mind that, you know, you're always joking, always laughing and there's less of that now. Yeah, I mean, the thing, also, everything also got more serious, but also the level is, is uh, way more higher, you know, so you have less margin of errors, so you need to be more focused on the recovery. I mean, I remember when I turned pro, like, we were talking about, uh, like, you know, six watts per kilo in a climb. It's, it's, it was something, you know, like, yeah, we do, I'm doing six watts per kilo for 20 minutes in this climb. It's going to be... But no, it's nothing, six watts per kilo. It's, uh, <laughs> it's average, you know. So this guy, uh, each time you go on Twitter and you see, you know, the estimation of this guy, it's like, fuck this, I'm sorry. It's like, it's... Uh, what they do is, like, it's really, really impressive, so... So then, yeah, maybe everybody is also more tired when you arrive to the hotel, you, you go to dinner. Everyone on their phone. Yeah, also this is also a big change. But, uh, yeah, this is how it is, you know, you need, to, you need to adapt, you need to keep the phone where it is. And, uh, yeah, at the end, if you... If I win, it's good. If I don't win, I still uh, have the passion for cycling, you know. Thibaut is different because he was also a big GC guy. He, uh, he, he, won, he won a lot of races. In, uh, so maybe this getting harder for him is, is maybe other, but I was never neither a big winner to win all the time, so I'm still enjoying it. And last thing, Kenny, last year when you took the red jersey for one day, we talked about what you would do with that red jersey and you said you'd maybe show it to your children one day to, to demonstrate that you were a good cyclist at one point. What have you done with the red jersey? I framed it. Yeah, I did. I framed it. I had a little room in my, uh, in my house and I had uh, like the pink jersey uh, through me, signed with a little uh, sentence. And, uh, one world uh, champion from Imola with Julian, with, with the world team signed, uh, like few little things like this, I, I framed it. Uh, because now I am always like, it's like keeping a bike from every team, you know? Like from now it's like, yeah, there is no much real value, you know, it's just a bike from last year, I don't really care. But maybe in 20 years I will look back at this and fuck this bike, I remember. Uh, so I do it more for later on, so maybe it's, it will uh, have more value, sentimental value for me. 
Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. And if you go to scienceinsport.com, you can also sort all of the energy products into categories according to when you want to use them, before, during or after your ride. Just go to the All Products tab and you can find exactly what you're looking for. If you're going for any long rides, I can definitely recommend the Beta Fuel 80, which is a powder which mixes up into a drink and keeps your energy levels topped up because, well, it gives you all of the carbohydrate that you need to get the best out of yourself. And I can also recommend the Beta Fuel Energy Chews to supplement the drink. Uh, the Energy Chews are actually a new one on me, but I've used them for the first time recently. They come in a lemon or orange flavor and uh, they just give you an additional burst of carbohydrate and they're very easy to eat when you're on the bike. Go to scienceinsport.com and use the discount code SISCP25 to get 25% off. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So Brian, the cena de ayer, we were still in Elche and my search for vegetarian food is becoming more and more desperate last night. Um, I failed miserably. I had some gyozas, which are kind of, which are Japanese dumplings, aren't they? Or certainly Asian dumplings with secreto iberico inside. Meat, unfortunately. I did ask whether the kitchen could prepare me something vegetarian. Alas, that was not the case. And uh, we did, Brian, though, have a nice Ribera del Duero uh, Mata Romera, it was called. Um, but you're not too keen. I don't think you're very keen on Ribera del Duero. You're certainly not keen on Rioja. Am I right? That's very, uh, that's very correct, yes. It's jammy, it's dense, um, it's not fresh, and not the kind of wine that you typically enjoy these days. And um, Brian, today, well, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is you've been relieved of your duties or your responsibilities as far as La Etapa de Mañana, tomorrow's stage, is concerned. Um, the bad news is that you've also been relieved of 25% of your fee, um, <laughs> and that will go to Luis Angel Mate, the Lynx of Marbella, who is the regional, as they say in France, of the et- uh, etapa, etapa, I'm getting confused now, my languages. Um, he's, he is taking on the, the presentation of Le, La Etapa de Mañana, and I spoke to Luis Angel Mate this morning. Of course, regular listeners will remember that Luis is planting trees. He's contributing to the reforestation of the Sierra de Bermeja, where he's from, and where we will also, well, we'll also see that tomorrow. Um, for every kilometer he does in the breakaway, he's contributing, well, he's paying for a tree, and, and um, his team are matching him, so the organization of the world, in fact, I think they're doubling what he contributes. Um, anyway, he knows tomorrow's stage very well, and I spoke to the Lynx and Marbella this morning about it. Luis, I just wanted to ask you about Peñas Blanc, it's a climb you must know pretty well. Just tell us what we should expect tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow for me is one of the most important stage for 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 this initiative of treats and for and because it's my home. The stage is 
not the, the best because the the area in the area you can do a lot of more climbs and a really hard stage but i know that you can't do every stage a hard stage and i hope for the few years have a really mountain hard stage the stage is easy the first part the first 38 kilometers in the coast of granada is hard with a lot of uh, steep climbs with the big road after a flat part with Malaga uh, the downhill of Ogen a, a really beautiful climb we we down we go down and the last part also is flat and the is, and the last climb and how is the climb tell us about the climb itself the climb is hard it's 20k you start at sea level and you climb until 1400 meters the first part is a step with 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 some parts of of, of downhill and the last part is the is the more hardest with the yeah 20 kates of of climb it's i think more than 48 47 minutes it's a long climb and if if you start full gas you can do difference and i think it's interesting for for the overall well brian tomorrow um one thing that luis didn't mention is that after 10 kilometers we are going through uh, uh 10.2 kilometers i think we're going through a curious locality a curious um place certainly in the context Al of this almones almonesar uh almuñecar um, which will be presented by another Spaniard, will be talked about by another Spaniard for us now. He is a familiar voice for long-time listeners of the podcast, certainly our Vuelta España episodes. He's also a native, native I believe, or certainly someone who spent a lot of his life in Almería, where we will be tonight. Welcome back to the podcast after too long, much too long, Fran Reyes. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Brian. Nice to meet Hello. you. And Likewise, Fran. Hello, dear listeners. It's great to be back, and it's great oh, to be. God, you're sounding wistful already, here. Fran. Yeah, of course. Man, I, I was just, you know, as you were gazing out over the Mediterranean. Yeah, of course. I mean, we have to appreciate this moment. I mean, we are recording together, which is something I really missed for uh, for you... three years, I think, already. We are standing. Besides a white car, which isn't that lovely, but if we go further away, if we zoom out, we find the beautiful Cabo de Gata on front, in front of us. We find the Mediterranean Sea calm. The wind is blowing mildly, just enough to wipe Fran, off I all said, this Fran, heat. I said this part had to be 10 minutes. Let's yeah. get to Almuñécar. <laughs> Almuñécar? You want to go to Almuñécar already? <laughs> yes, tell us about Almuñécar and why it's important for this Vuelta a España and particularly one rider in this Vuelta yeah. a España. So, Carlos Rodríguez, the Ineos Grenadier rider, the best Sugar man, as we call him on the podcast. <laughs> the sugar man, Carlos Rodríguez, was born in Almuñécar. He still lives there on a beautiful small family. And uh, he's going to have a beautiful moment. You know, he's not the kind of guy that transpires lots of emotions, not at least until this Volta, but I'm sure that it's going to be an exciting day for him. I know that some people in his village is preparing some welcoming for him as the stage goes through. Now, well, let's stay with Almuñécar. You promised me some succulent details about birds in... <laughs> 
in in Al Muñecar. You had some great stories linked to the bird life, I believe. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, for some reason, uh, Al Muñecar it has a long tradition on ornithology. You know, uh, my father was an ornithologist. Uh, well, an ornithology fan actually, and uh, we, the family, we used to go every year to Al Muñecar at least a couple of uh, a couple of times because there were ornithological contests there, and I. I have to say, on one edition, my father and well, the birds, his, his birds actually, won eight medals. Wow! On this, for, on for, those this of, for those of us who are still listening, yeah. um, we'll be back to the cycling <laughs> in a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, uh, and I, I was also telling you some, uh, some kind of bullshitty, you know, kind of childish uh, comment. Also, uh, Almuñécar in uh, was knew by the Romans as uh, sexy. So sexy, S E X Y, not not Y, sorry, I. And uh, there is this ornithological park in Almuñécar by the name of Loro Sexy, the sexy parrot. Oh wow! That's I mean, the sexy for... parrot is potentially a better nickname than Sugarman. Would you not say, yeah. Brian? But I think um, we'll stick to our <laughs> guns. No, no, no. But Carlos Rodriguez, he's far from being a parrot. He's more the silent type, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fran, you do, know, you, you do know, um, not so much Carlos Rodriguez, but you know a lot of people who have, whose path he has crossed. Um, coaches, people he's ridden with and against. Tell us, tell us three things we don't know about Carlos Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we can go with one thing only that speaks volumes about him. Back on his, well, he has been a brilliant uh, rider on the youth ranks. He has been crowned a Spanish national champion on the time trial three times as a junior and as a, what what's the name of the category below junior? Uh, under sixteen. Uh, under sixteen. I'm not even yeah. sure in English. Mm. Well, under and under sixteen, he didn't know won the road race, and you know why? He never won Was the he road race. Birds? No, <laughs> because. Everyone took advantage of him, and particularly Juan Ayuso. You know, that's the kind of guy he is—a humble, a humble guy, and quite uh, innocent sometimes. And uh, one—and the detail I was actually going to tell you about was that back when he was un- in under, under 16, he was on a very low-key team from Huelva, which is a province on which there is hardly any cycling tradition, by the name of Bicicletas Valdayo. The day, the year on which. He raced for Bicicletas Valdayo. Every rider on the team won at least one race. And that's because Carlos devoted himself to help his teammates win. He was so, he was so superior to everybody else that he only aimed at the bigger co- events. And on the lesser ones, he would work for his teammates. And that, I think, speaks a lot about the kind of person he is. Wow. Selfless sugar man, very selfless. Um, Brian, well, any thoughts on birds, Carlos Rodriguez? Uh, what we should eat in Almeria tonight before I before I defer to Fran again, and he he advises me on the local specialities. Well, seeing that you that you'd rather not eat any meat, I'm not, and you don't eat fish, goes to show how but you're a difficult man to to go to a restaurant with. But I'm sure, I'm, to, I ho- hopefully, hopefully. Fred can can give you some pointers on that. No, I mean Carlos Rodriguez. Is, you can't really say that he's the revelation of this this welter because he's already at twenty one, an incredibly established rider. And uh, I think he 
having signed just for next year as well with Ineos, I think he has the potential to be a Tour de France leader in, in another team in a couple of years. He is mm-hmm. he's very short of being one of the most complete Span- young Spanish riders I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Brian, today I was talking to Xavier Ateche, the team Ineos coach. He was telling me about he had, you know, actually overcome all the expectations that they had on him you know they they had a long-term plan for him to debut on this Vuelta and he has followed every step and he has gone even one step further than what they originally asked they were a bit sur- they by, by the sound of his words they were a bit surprised that uh, well with the perspective of time by how fast he had evolved and uh, my guess is that he could be already a two difference leader next year even at Ineos yeah. well I think he's going to go to Movistar from after 2023 I think that's what's going to happen mm. uh, anyway anyway Fran doesn't seem convinced maybe we'll discuss that again before the end of the World Cup uh, now chaps that does not quite conclude tonight's entertainment because I thought we'd play out with a bit of a postscript to one of our Encuentros del Dia from the first week uh, in Irun at the start of stage 5 we talked of Vuelta and Grand Tour debutant James Shaw of EF Education first about his hopes and fears for this race James who did two years in the World Tour with Lotto Sudau only to have the Persian goat's wool rug of cycling top division pulled out from under his feet and he dropped right down to continental division level that's the third tier of professional cycling only to claw his way back to the world tour this year he's currently just under two hours down on Remco Evenepoel I got told off my pronunciation by a Belgian this morning Evenepoel from now on um, I've probably got it wrong already multiple times in today's podcast um, James is currently just under two hours down on Remco And James is at the El Pozo factory of nightmares this morning is the last voice we will hear in tonight's episode. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with Dan Martin. In the meantime, I'm going to thank you, Brian. Thank you. And I'm going to thank Fran Reyes for joining us. And he will be joining us again before the end of the World Cup. Here is James Shaw. Last week, we talked about sort of getting to this point and what you might think and feel after about 9, 10, 11 days. So tell us, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good. Um, like you say, like into the unknown now. I don't, I don't really, I've never raced this far before. So. Right. And you're in time. <laughs> I've never, yeah, like I said, never raced this far. I don't really know what's happening, but it's weird, really. You sort of get to, you get to a point of about stage seven, and you're sort of on your limit, and you, you sort of don't seem to get any more tired. You, you, your fatigue seems to plateau because you're so tired at that point, and the heat's taking so much out of you. And that first week. Especially when we hit the hit the Basque country, oh, it was ridiculously hard. You know, I, th- I think looking at the courses as well, that was probably the hardest week of the race. I know we'll go into the higher mountains tomorrow and the days to come when we finish in the Sierra and things like that. But just the relentless of the courses and the repetitive nature of the climbs that we've already done, I think the the hardest the hardest course is done. Um, and I think as well, like looking at you know previous times, like when we did, when we saw each other at Tour of the Basque Country, the the nature of that race was so high. It's just the, the lie of the land there is just brutal. So I think to get here, you know, is a good sign. I'm I'm reasonably healthy and, and hoping to to 
freshen up over we had a rest day a couple of days ago and a time trial yesterday and then uh, let's say a um, an easier stage today it's not easy but it's easier um, so I think you know everyone will freshen up and hopefully I can come good towards the end of this week and heading into the final week as well we know the Inner Grand Tour obviously well you, you get kind of aerobically fitter but you're punching I think it's the same for everyone that's kind of explosiveness starts to fall a little bit do you feel that already after 10 days yeah definitely I feel like you know the ability to sit up to threshold is really good I feel like I can sit at threshold all day just sit there at one tempo and just you know let the engine do its thing but then when when I want to go over that when I want to push when I want to yeah like you say jump <laughs> jump and attack and maybe try and push further on in the climbs and stuff that ability is certainly tapering off but yeah the up to threshold there's so much so much there it's just like you know I don't know what it is like when you sit there in a diesel car and they just want to chug away it's yeah it's like that it just has this this gear but yeah, like you say the the top end the sprint the pit the peak power the the five minute power up to five minutes certainly started to take its toll I mean is it sort of accepted in the peloton the welter of of Grand Tour particularly but compared to other races as well there are days when the route is basically one long line you're on one road so does that does that lessen the number of accelerations you have to do and it may be well it's helpful when your explosive isn't quite there uh, still sort of speeding up slowing down speeding up all day yeah I think yes and no really um, sort of like I don't know how to describe the peloton but the best way I can sort of describe it is it breathes it, it, it's not yeah when you're in a team time trial if the guy in front of you accelerates you've got to accelerate but the peloton sort of just this waving breathing like thing yeah it's like it's a it's a it's a living entity within itself sort of thing it doesn't just stay as one line it's not a fixed object it it moves in and out and it moves up and down and it's sort of you know everyone calls this sort of washing machine effect where you get to the front and then people come round and you go down the middle and you sort of get stuck in this yeah breathing sort of a bit like a diaphragm-esque kind of thing so yeah it's a fantastic it's a wonderful poetic description but probably the best I've ever heard oh thank you I'm not I'm not known for my uh, yeah my literature being being that good so yeah well, you would say that's the same in any race or here is it uh, is it any different from other races you've been doing this year yeah I think like um, there are easier races where it's a little bit less you know when you go racing in the early part of the year in Amman and Qatar and things and you're on these massive four or five lane motorway things and you're just sort of cruising along the, you know everyone's on fast bikes fast kit everyone's fresh at the beginning of the year and then you go to Holland and you bunch up for the corners everyone breaks you kick out you bunch up again then there's the traffic island then there's a crash then there's some guys want to stop for pee then there's the feed zone uh, then it's exaggerated even more have a good day out there today cheers James thanks the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett